to another episode of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week, we're going to be looking at the case of the Crown on the application of DA and DS and the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. The citation for this case is 2019 UKSC 21. And the subject of this episode is especially controversial as it relates to one of the most divisive government policies of recent times, the benefits cap. For those of you who are maybe not aware, the benefits cap is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. There is a limit on the maximum amount of benefits that a household can receive from the government. The original cap was set at £26,000 a year to reflect the average income of a UK family. But as a result of the Welfare Reform and Work Act 2016, this was reduced to £23,000 a year for those living in London and £20,000 for those living outside of London. As you can imagine, there are certain rules and caveats attached to the benefits cap, but we don't need to go into the details for the purposes of this litigation, which is more of a challenge to the cap as a whole. Really, all we need to be aware of is that part of the aim behind the law is to encourage work, and so if a single person works more than 16 hours a week, then they are exempt from the cap. The problem is that this amount of work can be especially difficult for a number of people, and that brings us to the appellants in this case. DA is the name ascribed in this context to three single mothers who sought to challenge the legislation. When proceedings began, two of these women had children under the age of two, and it is important to note that those children were also appellants in this case, falling under that same DA grouping I just mentioned. That group was successful in the High Court, but the order in their favour was set aside by the Court of Appeal. In a similar fashion, DS comprised two single mothers. One mother had five children and the other four, and out of those nine children, three were under the age of five at the commencement of proceedings. Once again, those children were also part of the DS group and considered to be appellants themselves. While the claims they made were dismissed, they were nevertheless granted a so-called leapfrog certificate so that they could appeal directly to the Supreme Court alongside DA, which is where we will pick the case up. The claim itself is based on human rights grounds, and in particular Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights, the right to a private and family life, as well as Article 14, protection from discrimination. In order to see whether these rights are engaged, it was first necessary for the justices to look at the impact of the benefits cap, and it is certainly the case that there is significant impact on single-parent households, especially where the children for those households are of a very young age. On the one hand, it is undoubtedly the case that single parents are incentivized to find work as a result of the way that the benefits cap operates. But on the other hand, there is a certain irony in the way that it operates alongside other policies. For example, there is no free childcare available for children under the age of two, and income support is only replaced with job seekers allowance once the youngest child of a single parent has reached school age. All of this actively mitigates against the opportunity for single parents of young children to actually go out and find work even if they are incentivised to do so. As a result, many are left below the poverty line, and it is well documented that not only does this negatively affect those who are collecting benefits, but there can also be a significant impact on the growth and personal development 
of children at such a tender age. This drop below the poverty line is important, not only from an ethical standpoint but also a legal one as well, because it meant that the right to family life under Article 8 was engaged. That in turn allowed the right to non-discrimination under Article 14 to come into play, and grants them a status on which basis they can be discriminated against. However, in order to actually be subject to discrimination, do the claimants not have to be picked out and then treated differently? Well, the human rights case of Thlimenos and Greece from the year 2000 addressed this point and held that where a person has some special status or characteristic, and yet is treated the same as everyone else, then there is a case that is made out. After that, it is up to the government to justify the discrimination, and following on from the reasoning in Thlimenos, in the case of DA and DS, that means showing why an exception to the benefit cap had not been carved out for single parents. The central idea from human rights law is that the rule is considered to be manifestly without reasonable foundation. From there, the government puts forward what it considers to be the foundation for such a discriminatory rule, and it then becomes up to the court to decide whether that foundation is reasonable or not. So, with that in mind, the government submitted that it had a reasonable belief that children derive a long-term benefit from living in a household where at least one parent works, and because of this, there should not be an exception to the benefits cap for people in the claimant's position. At this point, the question becomes to what extent the justices should look into the policy of the government itself. For the majority, the reasons given provided a sufficient grounding for the policy and justified the discrimination. Furthermore, those justices also looked into the legislation through the lens of Article 3 of the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, which states that a public authority must treat the best interests of a child as a primary consideration. Now, it is important to note that this international obligation does not have full status in domestic law, but it can aid the courts in their interpretation of the European Convention on Human Rights. Examining the approach taken by the government in this matter, it was held that the best interests of children and young families were given primary consideration, and therefore the appeals by DA and DS ultimately failed. Before we move on though, it is worth thinking about the judgments handed down by the minority, as it could be argued that they took a more investigative look at the reasoning put forward by the government. Lady Hale, for example, considered this to be more of a balancing act, and so the ostensible benefits of the policy had to be set out against the damage done to those with the status of the claimants. Given that the rules taken as a whole convey little public benefit in terms of either incentivising work or actually saving the taxpayer money, while the effect for those on benefits is to take them below the poverty line, it is pretty clear that the balancing exercise favours the case made by the appellants. The good news for us is that these differing opinions give us some structure for our own critique of this case. In fact, the judgement from Lord Kerr that we haven't mentioned yet dissents in terms of both the reasoning adopted by the majority as well as the outcome, so that is definitely worth exploring further. For him, the attempt by the Supreme Court to decide whether the legislation was manifest without reasonable foundation was wrong because that concept exists for the benefit of the state itself as part of its margin of appreciation when implementing policy 
that bumps up against the Human Rights Convention. The aim is therefore to give the government some flexibility, but it's not some tool or measuring stick for the courts to use when making their own assessment. Instead, the courts should examine the issue based on the principle of proportionality that is already well established in case law. That takes Lord Kerr much closer to Lady Hale in terms of how the benefits cap should be analysed, and so you can see why he eventually joined her in the minority. But how does this stack up against the approach taken by the majority? Well, for a start, the use of a balancing exercise or proportionality is much closer to what we might expect when dealing with rights that are not absolute. Last year, we looked at the case of Siobhan McLaughlin, who was discriminated against based on her status as a widow. When the Supreme Court came to its decision, it did so by looking at the government policy and balancing that against the discrimination suffered by McLaughlin. It's not really too much of a stretch to suggest that the same method could be applied in the case of the benefits cap as well. However, I'm not sure that this was the main reason behind the dissenting judgments by Lord Kerr or Lady Hale. In reality, this was much more about having a way to officially criticise the law as it stands for the way that it oppresses poor people, with only minimal benefit for the wider public. To an extent, this is fair because the benefits cap has always been a way for the Conservative Party to gain a political advantage. It is a popular policy with widespread support across the left and the right, and when it is opposed by Labour, it is not regarded in the press as standing up for the less well-off, but instead of supporting people who choose to live off the state instead of doing a hard day's work. Judges stepping in makes little difference to this, as even if the minority had been able to form a majority, it is not as if there is a power to actually strike down the law in British legislation. Instead, they are free to add their own voices to the wiser debate, but this in itself raises a broader question of whether they should actually do so. The benefits cap may be a populist policy that threatens the well-being of some of the most vulnerable in society, but judges are not policy makers, and so this is ultimately a question for those across the road in Parliament. I think that this is why the majority eventually strike the right chord with their decision, even as they also express their much broader concern. They acknowledge that it is for Parliament to make this decision, and while the courts are not there to evaluate the policy, they still do have a role to play by ensuring that sufficient attention is given to human rights concerns when the actual legislation is being devised and then implemented. Whether they have applied this logic correctly to the benefits cap is another question, but it does at least maintain a clear line between law and policy. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this episode of the UK Law Weekly Podcast. Thanks as ever to bensound.com as well for the theme music. Before I leave you, I just want to mention that you can check out the rest of my work at uklawweekly.com. That's my website. So visit there for all of the YouTube stuff as well as podcast archives. The search functionality is really helpful on the website. So make sure that you use that. We've got all of the episodes going back years now. I think we've done about 150 episodes, which is phenomenal. And um, hopefully there'll be at least 150 more in the upcoming years. I'll be back with another episode next week, but for now, bye!